Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beanless and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Tonight, we have such an awesome guest. He is a former top 100 tennis player on the ATP Tour, a Stanford University All-American and graduate, and founder and creator of Tennis Evolution, where you can find so many great videos on YouTube and also subscribe to so many of his great courses. Please welcome to the pod, Jeff Salzenstein. Jeff, thank you. Thank you for taking time today and uh, walking us through your journey, man. We got a lot to unpack on this one. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be on. I love doing these these podcasts and these chats, and I appreciate you reaching out. And I know uh, I'm really excited to share a lot of value today with your with your listeners. So, you know, those that follow you know you do an unbelievable job breaking down on your videos and courses and forehands and backhands, approach shots, volleys, especially the serve. You're known as the serve surgeon by a lot of people. Um, but you also emphasize belief. And if you don't mind, I want to take you back to a night match in 1997, the U.S. Open, on Arthur Ashe Stadium on a Friday night, playing against the number two ranked player in the world at the time, Michael Chang, in front of 20,000 people. Walk us through what happened during that match. Well, it's a great place to start. It's a defining point in my career, one of the most memorable parts, experiences that I had with my, with my professional tennis career. And as you said, it was 1997. It was the first year of Arthur Ashe Stadium. You know, I'm inside this massive stadium playing number two player in the world, Michael Chang. Uh, I was nervous as all get out. So anybody that's listening, if you've ever been nervous, overly nervous before a tennis match, during a tennis match, I can relate. Uh, I, I actually found myself up five games to four serving in the first set. I got through the early nerves around two all in the first set. I think I took my first deep breath <laughs> and I actually started relaxing and, and pretty much found a zone for about 20 minutes. Five foot, uh, five foot, five, five four. I'm serving. I've got the big 125 mile an hour lefty serve, and it's set point. And of course, I go with my bread and butter, the wide slice in the ad court. You know, classic serve and volley. Uh, we don't see a lot of that today. Uh, serve and volley come in. Chang stretches out, and he, he knocks a return low, pretty low, just below net level to my backhand side. And for most players, uh, that would be a difficult volley. But because I had practiced the backhand cross-court angle volley my entire life, I was able to hit that in my sleep. So fortunately, he played the ball there, and I I angled it away, and Chang scampers across the baseline and and can't reach it. And I win the first set against the number two player in the world, and the crowd absolutely erupts. I still remember uh, fans standing and hooting and hollering. One guy was pointing at me as if to say, who is this guy? Where did he come from? He came out of nowhere. And uh, I look at my box. I got 20 people in my box. I got fraternity brothers. I got my parents. I got my coach. I even have my ex-girlfriend who <laughs> decided she wanted to be my girlfriend that week, probably because I was playing on stadium court <laughs> <laughs> at, at, at Arthur Ashe. On Arthur Ashe. And I look at him, and I, I look at my, my, my box, and I, and I kind of give a, a, well, actually a big smile as I'm backpedaling slowly to the baseline. I always tell people that's when the match ended. And people say, what are you talking about? It ended. You just won the first set. Well, what happened was the, 
thought, the dominant thought in my mind before playing that match was, Jeff, whatever you do, don't embarrass yourself in front of millions of people tonight. You're going to play on TV. John McEnroe with the call. You got 24,000 people in, in Ash. Don't embarrass yourself. And so that smile represented, oh, I've arrived and I didn't embarrass myself. But I made a big mistake because I took my foot off the gas. I got, I wouldn't say complacent, probably too strong a word, but I certainly had a set point, pun intended there. I, I had a set point of just keeping it close, just not embarrassing myself. Now, I ended up losing that match in four entertaining sets. It was a great match. People loved it. People still remember it to this day. I don't know how they do because I didn't play that many matches. Maybe that's because I only played that match on Ash. But... I didn't have that set point of finding a way to win, finding a way to overcome the number two player in the world. And that, that stems back to belief systems. And so that's one reason I'm so passionate about not only coaching technique and footwork and strategy, but really helping people unlock their limiting beliefs, really helping them change the way they see their tennis and their life so they can actually accomplish so much more. And you do a great example of Look, it it affects people at the highest level. You're playing on a pro level, U.S. Open on Arthur Ashe. You see it right now today. Guys rank 400 and guys rank 150. Not much of a difference when you're talking about physical capabilities. A lot of that is, you know, I would say most of that, and you could speak more of it, obviously, than I can, is pure belief. Are you going to get through those big, tough moments and big points that you got to win? It's it, it goes all the way up from as a junior player to the elite. Absolutely. You know, I I work with clients all the time now around this concept. I help them to understand that, you know, the thoughts that they carry around with them, the beliefs that they have, the story that they're telling themselves is impacting how they find solutions on the court, how they find a win, way to win tiebreakers in close matches how they can even improve their technique in the moment because they're focusing on on the wrong things. And so much of this is training your mind to focus on the right things. Now, you you can be Pollyanna positive and, and still lose a lot of tennis matches. I was very positive as a pro athlete, and I had limitations with my skill set. I had limitations with some of the choices that I made with my footwork and my strategy. But if you don't have your mind anchored as a solid foundation, you really have zero chance. Yeah. And so in sport and life and business, you have to be the whole package if you want to be uber successful and happy at the same time. And that's why one of the reasons why I think we're put on, on this planet in this time is to get the most out of ourselves and understand ourselves as best as we can so that we can fulfill our potential and our destiny when it comes to mindset and our skill set with whatever we're passionate about. Yeah, so, so true. Yeah, that's great, great advice. Thanks for sharing that, Jeff. So let's kind of take a step way back now. Um, you was a little kid. How did you get get started in this sport? Did your parents play? Did you have siblings that played? Yes, my father was my first coach. He was a Division One tennis player at the mighty powerhouse of the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, Colorado. And uh, he, he was from the Midwest, and he came out on scholarship, met my mother there, and they got married and made a baby. I happened to be that baby, and by the time I'm two or three years old, I've got a racket in my hand. He's teaching at a club in St. Louis. He taught under the great Bush Buckle to town in tennis. And so, you know, I, we have videos and pictures of me, two, three, four years old, and my dad always would say, my gosh, 
this kid's hand-eye coordination is off the charts. So I was fortunate. I was blessed to have a father that was a good athlete. My mother could run like the wind. She, she was a gazelle. She had long legs. And so I just kind of had that natural athletic ability. My parents split when I was four. I moved to Denver with my mother. She's a single mom. And uh, I started playing tennis. I would visit my dad in the summers. My dad was teaching at other clubs in St. Louis. He later moved to Florida when I was about 10 or 11 years old, and he taught at the Great Labors uh, International Resort in Delray Beach and then taught at Boca West. And so uh, tennis was just a part of what I did, uh, especially with my dad. It was a way for us to bond. Uh, My mother remarried uh, to Miles Cortez, who played for the great Trinity teams with Chuck McKinley and Frank Frawling. So my mom's got a thing for tennis players. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I had two dads that had strong tennis pedigrees. And, and so I, my, I like to say that my, my father gave me my foundation, my technique. Uh, he gave me my smarts. He, he, he taught me how to play smart tennis from a young age. Uh, my stepfather was there through thick and thin, taking me up to practice with him at 9 o'clock at night uh, in Denver, Colorado, in high altitude, and going to my tournaments and supporting me. And so very blessed to have you know amazing parents and parents that were not uh, overbearing and and did not put pressure on me so that's very unique you know my father uh, and my stepfather never once uh, put pressure on me at one time and uh, I think that's one reason why at 46 years old I'm still so entrenched in the game because uh, it was it came from me it was an internal desire so my father got me started and, and then my stepfather and my mom, uh, cultivated that as I grew up. So yeah, that's great, and I hope the parents of, of athletes in whatever sport it is taking that message to heart because that's obviously really really important. So as you said, you know, genetics played a, played a good role. Um, you had you had tennis playing parents. You had supportive parents. Um, it was clear as you started to go through the junior ranks that you had a lot of talent. You were highly ranked nationally in various age groups. Now, uh, a lot of things that we talk about with progress, and, and again, someone like you who's made it to that elite level, people just think it's smooth sailing, it's straight up, and that's not, that's not the case. And, and while you did have a great junior career, I know you had some tough moments uh, at times too, so kind of talk a little bit about the highlights and some of the struggles and, and maybe how those struggles help motivate you to, to overcome any deficiencies or, or um, not as strong beliefs that you'd have mentally and try to get you over the hump in those specific moments? Yeah, I'm a big believer that adversity defines us. It defines our character. It defines how bad we want something. Um, we are going to fail. We are going to make mistakes. We're going to do that on the tennis court. We're going to do that off the tennis court. And the big thing is, is how you can be resilient, how you can persevere, how you can, your character is revealed during these tough times. And when I was nine years old, my, my mom remarried and my stepdad said, listen, you're going to be the number one player in the state in the 10 and unders this year because he had seen me play. And I shook my head and I said, what are you talking about? Because I knew nothing about rankings. You know, I would won one trophy at eight. Sure enough, I was number one as a nine-year-old at the tens. And then at 12 years old, I'm number one in the country. I win the nationals. I lost in the finals of the clay courts. I won the nationals, which is now called the National Hard Courts in San Diego at Balboa Park. I beat a guy named Brian Dunn in the finals who ended up being top 200 in the world. And I beat uh, a couple other you know, great junior players. 
And uh, here I am coming from Denver, Colorado. You know, I'm only practicing 60 to 90 minutes a day. I'm not at an academy. I'm not, I'm playing other sports. And again, that's probably the gifts uh, that I was given. That was probably cultivated by my dad and other coaches and, and other other people that influenced me. But what happened from 12 to 15, um, I wouldn't wish on too many people in, in, from a tennis standpoint. And, and what happened was, you know, I didn't grow. Uh, a lot of guys started going through puberty, started growing. You know, at 15 and a half, I was five foot four, 102 pounds. So imagine at 15 and a half, you're playing against six footers that, you know, have been shaving for two years. You know, I, there's no sign of that happening. And uh, I was still playing other sports. I was playing basketball. I was skiing. And I found myself from being the number one player in the country at 12 to getting triple crowned at Kalamazoo. And that's not the triple crown that you want to have. I lost first round singles. I lost first round doubles. And I lost first round consolation. So imagine being, you know, almost 16 years old. You're 69 in the country. You were number one. That takes a hit to your psyche, to your self-esteem, to For sure. your identity as a person. And you're in high school. You're a teenager. It's already awkward stage in your life. Uh, my freshman year in high school, as a, as a, you know, I'm less than 100 pounds. I'm 95 pounds soaking wet. I played number one singles, but the next year I played number two singles as a sophomore. So that was a tough time, and it was gut check time. And I think it really does speak to my resilience. If you trace my entire career, junior, college, pro, and even in my entrepreneurial career, I think the one word that always stands out is perseverance. You know, I just stick with it. And so I rededicated myself. I got back to the fundamentals. I I changed rackets. I changed coaches. I gave up skiing. I gave up basketball. I gave it all up at 15 to focus on tennis. Because when I was 12 years old, I had a dream to play at Stanford. I didn't have a dream to win Wimbledon. I had a dream to play at Stanford for Coach Gould, and I didn't know how I was going to do it coming from Colorado. And I needed a, I needed some, I needed to do something at 15 and 16 years old. And so by 16, I had, I turned it all around in a year. I got to four in the country, and then uh, my first year of 18s, I think I was about 20 in the country, and then my final year, I think I finished number two in the country started getting recruited my senior year uh, to go to to go to Stanford. But I think the lesson here is perseverance, stick with it when the times are tough, make some changes, be willing to make some changes. I know a lot of guys that and juniors and gals that just kind of kind of flailed, like kind of went like they crashed and burned when things didn't go their way when they were really good when they were twelve. They never really got it back. And um, I think that's something my story can can inspire others to stick with it and to keep fighting through the tough times. No, for sure. And, and you know, you said you had a dream to attend Stanford. Now, obviously, your second year in the 18s, your second nationally in the country, you had other schools besides Stanford um, wanting to have you play for them. Obviously, with Stanford being your top choice, was, was it something that you, did you take any other official visits? Did you have serious discussions with other coaches or was it just Stanford all the way for you? I did. I, I, my story into college is another fascinating one. At least I think it's fascinating. When I was finishing my junior year, as alluded to, I was about 20 in the country. And some, I was starting to get letters from school, but mainly the academic schools because I had a 3.95. I was in honors. I was taking AP classes. I went to one of the best public schools in Denver, Cherry Creek High School. Uh, I was very committed to my academics. And I got a phone call in September, uh, or August or September, leading into my senior year. So 
So I just finished my first year of 18, and it was Coach Dick Gould. And he said, hey, uh, I want you to come for a visit in, in October. And, of course, I was like, you know, where do I sign up for this visit? But what happened was that summer, Jonathan Stark and Jared Palmer, they had just finished their sophomore years in college. And they were the top players in the country. And they went out on the pro tour in the summer, and they lit it up. And they told Coach in August they weren't coming back. So literally a month before the season was supposed to start, he gets his two All-Americans say, we're not coming back, we turn, we're turning pro. And had those guys come back, I never get that call from Coach Gould because his team would have been full or he would have been recruiting for the following year. But he needed to start recruiting right away because these guys had left. And so the, the, the uh, cabinet, or the, the closet was bare uh, with players. He needed to get players. And I was the third guy on his list. So there were two guys ranked above me that he recruited. I was his third recruit. And I went for the visit. He offered me a half scholarship. I had a full scholarship to Notre Dame. Coach Bob Bayless was building a great program. They, uh, I had a teammate, I had a friend from Colorado that was a junior in college there, so I was going to get to spend one year. I had a full ride offer to Notre Dame. I also looked at Northwestern. Interestingly enough, none of the other Pac-10s, UCLA, USC, they weren't interested. Again, I think the, the, the storyline there was that I was relatively small. Uh, I didn't have any big weapons. And so none of these schools thought I really had potential to maybe play high in the lineup. So I didn't get a lot of interest from your, your powerhouses. It was Stanford because of the, they turned pro and it was academic. Those two guys turned pro. And then it was Notre Dame and Northwestern. And I had one week to decide on the signing period. And I couldn't decide because I had this full ride and I could be a big fish in a smaller pond in South Bend, Indiana, or I could go to mighty Stanford and maybe never even start, maybe never even play in the top six. And um, came down to the last day and my basketball slash tennis coach in high school, I uh, went into his, um, his office, into his uh, room. He was an English teacher. And it was the day before I sat down and uh, sorry if I get a little emotional, he passed away recently, but uh, I, I sat down and he said, Jeff, we used to go to lunch every week. He would take me to Chili's every week and he would say, Jeff, it's not even close. I go, what are you talking about? I'm agonizing over this decision. He goes, dude, you're going to Stanford. And I looked down and I go, okay. <laughs> and so uh, I went home that night. My parents didn't know what I was going to decide. I had the two hats out. And they had no idea what I was going to do. And fortunately, my, my stepfather was like, hey, we'll make it work with the half scholarship to Stanford. And I, I signed with Stanford and put the Stanford hat on. And that was, that was the decision. So, so cool. So now, you, you know, you, you go off to Stanford. And, yeah, Coach Gould, they lost a couple players. They decided to go pro. He needed to recruit a bunch of guys. He has you. You don't start while you had a fantastic Collegiate career, two-time All-American. Uh, you played. You were in the mix. I think you won two team titles. It was in the mix of Stanford winning four in a row. Um, you obviously played with fell- with other fellow pros, but it wasn't all roses for you when you first got there. Yeah, it wasn't. And so, so I, I decided to take this half scholarship to go to Stanford. I decided. And the way I decided was, if I could never hit a tennis ball again, where would I be happiest? So I actually chose the college 
based on where I thought I'd be happiest without tennis. And I think that's an important thing to consider. A lot of people, they decide to go to college for the tennis, and then it doesn't work out, and they're pretty, you know, they're upset. So I go for the school, I go for the weather, I go for California. No offense to the Notre Dame folks and to South Bend, Indiana, but Palo Alto is, is a beautiful place to hang out. I go there. I'm the third recruit, and they have four guys returning. So if you do the math, if I'm the third recruit, that means I'm playing seven as a freshman. And the number seven player isn't playing. So I had to go in and prove myself, and we played challenge matches back then. And I beat the two freshmen, and uh, Coach Gould put me in at number five in the lineup. So I ended up, you know, I had, I had really improved my senior year, so I was actually ranked higher than those two guys after the recruiting process was done. And I went in and I beat them, and I played number five my freshman year with basically no serve. I went 22-4 and four at the number five position. All I did was win and find ways to win with, with no serve. I, I, I think because when I was 12, I was a smart player. I figured out ways to win. I was cagey. That was good enough at number five. It wouldn't have been good enough at number two or number three. But I was thrilled to, to start for Coach Gould and to play uh, n- n- number five my freshman year and play my role. But that serve was a bugaboo. And so after my freshman year, I went to go play these satellites. They were satellites at the time, not futures. And I went to play these satellites in Louisiana and Texas. And I couldn't get out of the qualifying rounds. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? I can't even qualify for the lowest level pro tournaments. Why would I want to play the whole summer and continue this pattern? So when everyone else continued on to Missouri in the Midwest and they played segment four, I went back to Denver, committed to figuring out my serve. And so I watched Goran Ivinicevic uh, at Wimbledon that year. It was 1993. And I started going out to Denver Tennis Club and practicing my serve, hitting hoppers of serves. That's what I did a lot. I hit a lot of hoppers of serves throughout my career. And something clicked, just modeling Goran Ivinicevic. This was before YouTube and before you know videos. And I just watched him, and something clicked one day, and all of a sudden I had this, I'd say 120 mile an hour serve. So I went from 100 miles an hour to 120. I think part of it was physical, part of it was technique, part of it was like a new kind of visual, a new idea. And I go back to Stanford my sophomore year, and Coach Gould and John Whitlinger look at me like, what happened to you? <laughs> and I just shook my head, shrugged my shoulder, and said, I don't know, but I'm here. And Coach Gould said, well, you're going to play number two this year. I think we played some challenge matches to support that. But he put me in at number two ahead of three of the upperclassmen. I played behind Mike Flanagan, who was a senior, and he slotted me at the two position, and he made me into a certain baller. He had me coming in left and right. He had me hitting. He had me chipping. He had me looking to come in because I couldn't really do that my freshman year. And I had a great sophomore year. I qualified for the NCAAs in singles. I won a lot at the new number two position. And and the the getting back to adversity, if you look at my junior career at 15, you know, I drop, I plummet. Well, my sophomore year, I'm playing at the, I'm playing in South Bend, Indiana, ironically enough, and we're playing the team championships there. And we're playing against Mighty USC, and I'm playing number two singles against John Leach, and, and Dick Leach was the coach of USC. He was Dick Gould's rival, and I'm playing my rival, John Leach, his son. And it comes down to our match. It's three all in matches, and it's three all in the third set. So the winner of this match wins the national title. Are you aware at this? Are you aware at this point that the match is three all? 
Yeah, everyone's watching. There's okay. no one left playing. It's right. just John Leach and I and Dick Gould and Dick Leach. And there's 500 people against the fence waiting to see who's going to win the national title. And it's three all. And we're wearing, my team was wearing red shoelaces as a, as a, a way of being, you know, bonding. And I break, one of my shoelaces was too long and I break a shoelace. So I have to go over and I borrow Dick Gould's shoelace and I'm untying his shoe and tying my shoe and it's a 10 minute break at three all in the third. And I go back out to serve and it's break point. And my, you know, my, my favorite serve is the wide slice. And Dick Leach, I find out this story 25 years later. He's behind, he can't even be on the court because he's so nervous for his son. He's behind and he basically whispers to his son, he's like, take away the wide serve. And so, of course, I go with the bread and butter out wide. He's sitting on it, and he rifles a backhand down the line winner to break serve. And the next 10 minutes, he played some of the best tennis of his life, and he beats me 6-3 in the third, and I lose the national title for Stanford. Devastated. Uh, my parents were concerned. I, I, there was some woods by the tennis area and the, by the hotel, and I went off in the woods somewhere. My parents had to follow me into the woods of South Bend to make sure I came out alive. So, you know, again... Heartbreak, Heartbreak Hotel there. Obviously, you know, I didn't have cancer and I didn't almost die, but when you're a tennis player and you lose a national title for your team, it's pretty devastating. But I found the resolve to come back my junior and senior year, played number one singles those two years. We got new guys in, new blood, Paul Goldstein and Scott Humphreys, one guy, one junior Wimbledon, one guy, one Kalamazoo. And that junior year, I was number one and, and team captain, and we went undefeated. And that was an absolutely magical year, that junior year. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that year was unbelievable. I mean, you, you played on some loaded teams, and I know you're still close with, with Coach Goldstein, Will St. Alex. He's the current coach. And uh, for those that are listening, I interviewed Coach Goldstein uh, about November of 2018. So that's on this podcast list, so go check out that interview as well. Um, you missed playing with the Bryant brothers. I, I guess you, you kind of recruited them, um, but, but you were on some loaded teams there, and I know it was such a great experience for you. It was. I mean, I think Coach Gould had three undefeated teams in his existence, and John McEnroe was one team, uh, my team was another, and then, of course, the Bryan brothers with Paul and Ryan Walters. So uh, Paul Goldstein was part of two undefeated teams, he won four national titles as a team in the team. Uh, I won two uh, team titles. Got to the semis of my my uh, junior year. I got to the semis of the individual. Uh, but that junior year, we actually saved the match point. I think once or twice, one in the dual season and one in the team championships. Uh, but it, certainly a magical year. And then the next year, my senior year, we lost Scott and we got Ryan Walters. And we were the underdogs going in. UCLA was undefeated with with Justin Gimmelstab and. Eric Kano and a couple other uh, great players, and we upset them in the finals. And so, yeah, my, my Stanford experience is magical. I got my degree. Uh, I, I was in a fraternity there. I, I fell in love for the first time. I got to play number one singles, uh, really got to develop my game, got to develop um, you know, physically, mentally, and emotionally. I was never groomed to play pro tennis, so I like to tell people being a pro tennis player was an accident for me coming from Colorado uh, with no serve. And I really, really grew in uh, to myself in college, and I needed that time. That was my that was my time to develop. So when I got out on the tour, uh, I was able to make that transition relatively easily. 
Yeah, for sure. And I know it helped to have a, a bunch of uh, college teammates also on tour too. So even though you guys are kind of competing for the same things and wanting the same things, you also have that bond between you. And uh, it's not like you're totally, totally isolated out there. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about your pro career. Obviously, we talked about the Chang match. Um, with your pro career, it, it seemed like whenever you started to get some serious momentum, you would get hurt. Um, and I mean, you've done your own research. Um, you kind of took it upon yourself to find the leading experts. Um, I know you had a variety of injuries, leading experts in those areas, whether it was your ankle, um, I know you had a bad ankle injury, your shoulders and, and whatnot. You know, you did your own, um, research and trying to find these people to learn as much as you can. And it's important to say that after age 30, you still made the top 100. And age 30, back when you were playing, was extremely rare. It's not like what it is right now. Um, you were kind of, I would say, um, leading edge with what you were trying to learn and try to um, rebound from any setbacks that you had. Yeah, it's a great, great opening on, on how kind of things evolved for me in my pro career. You know, I started... In 1996, on the tour, and I'm 20, almost 23 years old. I'm 22 and a half, and I go play my first satellite in Mexico. I lose my first match to a guy 750 in the world, and I'm thinking to myself, "What did I get myself into?" Uh, fortunately, I ended up rebounding that next week, finished second on the satellite. Uh, got a couple wild cards into Indianapolis at the time as the RCA, uh, a couple challengers. Then I went to Portugal, and I and I won that satellite. And I went to Germany, and I got to the finals of a challenger. So within six months, I went from 800 in the world to 200. So I made that transition relatively easily. For the next year, I jumped from 200 to 150, and that's where I got a wild card into the U.S. Open. So I was one of the new Americans on the tour that was getting results. I beat a guy named Michael Thielstrom, uh, who's about 65 in the world. I beat him in a four-setter, and then that set up the match with Chang. And so after that match with Chang, the next day I was in I was in a hotel room in Midtown Manhattan with Jeff Schwartz, who is Pete Sampras' agent, and with uh, David Egdis, who's now at the Tennis Channel. And David was a junior agent underneath Schwartz. And IMG, they represented IMG, they, they uh, signed me to, to, they became my agent. And so I didn't sign with an agent out of college because, again, nobody really thought, I was never on national team as a kid. I was never groomed to be a pro tennis player. And here I am all of a sudden exploding on the scene, and I'm now with IMG. And so that fall, I didn't do very well. I had a lot of expectations. I put a lot of pressure on myself after that Chang match. I didn't win at the challenger level. I was doubting myself. I went home in December of that year. I'd been on the tour for about a, a little over a year, and I was playing pickup basketball. I came down for a rebound. Nobody touched me. I landed, and I felt a sharp pain in the front of my ankle, and that became, began the odyssey, and that's probably the odyssey, one of the, the odyssey of me becoming the coach I am today because for eight months I went more of the traditional route, and I was misdiagnosed for eight months. I found a doctor in New York that found the problem with the ankle, he removed the bone spur, you know, a year in, I, I finally had the surgery, and so I lost a year, and then I come back, and my first tournament back, I'm playing in the Miami Open, which I think was called the NASDAQ at the time, Right. Um, 
I'm playing Daniel Nestor in the qualifying round. I beat Nestor, but during that match, I found I felt a click in my knee, my left knee. So it was my right ankle, then my left knee. That was misdiagnosed for six weeks. I went back to the same doctor in New York. He repaired it with a meniscus uh, attachment. And so within two years, I had two surgeries. By the age of 25, I had two surgeries. Most people would probably most people would probably pack it in or say it's, you know, this isn't, this isn't for me or this isn't in the cards. And a lot of careers have ended at this point, but I decided from the, all that time off to try to solve these issues, why things were breaking down. And so that's when I started my search. At that time, Dara Torres uh, was killing it in the Olympics with her swimming at 34 years old. And she was doing a very advanced type of flexibility training I was studying the Denver Broncos at the time with Bill Romanowski and Shannon Sharp, and now they may, may have been taking some synthetic stuff, but I also know that they were doing cutting-edge training with the supplements and the diet and nutrition. So I was looking outside of tennis to find the peak performers, and I was doing this at age 25, so it's, we're going on 20 years now. And I studied everything around mindset, spirituality, uh, the physical body, movement, and that's when I started studying uh, all the top pros on, on video, Sampras and Agassi and Philippousis and Rafter and Quervy. The list goes on and on. And I was studying the movements and the techniques and the way they were playing points. And what I realized was that the way I was being taught or coached or the way I thought tennis was played was actually very different. So I started looking through a different lens in all aspects of performance. I remember... In my about 26, 27 years old, I was in Australia, and I was drinking green powder drink, green powdered vegetable drinks. Everyone else was drinking the powder, uh, Powerades, the pink and the reds and the blues, and I was drinking green vegetable drinks, and guys were looking at me like I was nuts. <laughs> and now, greens and celery juice and cucumber juice and green powders, they're like, it's normal now. And so I was just doing that stuff 20 years ago, uh, 15, 20 years ago, and absolutely obsessed with performance. When I lived in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, guys would go out on Friday nights to go to the bars. I would go to a, I would go to a, gr- a healthy grocery store and look at uh, food labels uh, and study nutrition. Like, I was just a nut when it came to that stuff. Probably so much of a nut that it might have even distracted me from my success to a certain extent because I was so fixated on performance and trying new things that I didn't always just stay with the same thing. I kind of had that entrepreneurial distraction thing going on where I would try a new diet and then three months later I would try another one. So, But I think part of the genius was trying all these things so that I could figure out the truth or what worked for me and what could help others. Um, you know, Now I'm on the other side of it coaching and it's it's, it's amazing that I can draw on all these experiences and help people uh, get to where they want to go faster. Well, this just seems like a natural progression into what you were going to get into after your playing career was over. And I know you started it with Jeff Sosentine Tennis. It evolved into Tennis Evolution. Um, again, it seemed pretty natural that you were going to do this. Was it something that you made a, a concerted, you know, a, decision that this is what you're going to do or just after you were playing this was your love you loved analyzing the game for not only from a a technical but also from a a mental perspective also your you know on on your exercises and your nutrition and the total package this is just something that kind of happened and you and you dove right into it so um, so yes so it was really interesting 
surgeries. It's kind of slow going getting my ranking back up. No support from the agent because they couldn't help me. I, was, I didn't really deserve it. Um, no support from the USTA. I got a few coaches you know, to help me along, a couple coaches that really inspired me, John Yandel, Joseph O'Dwyer, um, Craig O'Shaughnessy. I mean, they were guys that did help me, and I broke the top 100 at the age of 30, and I basically did it alone. Like, I didn't have a lot of support. I mean, you never do anything alone, but it wasn't like I had this funding behind me, and I had these sponsors, and I had a team. And people always said, man, if you would have had all that, I mean, who knows what would have happened because, you know, you just, you had the ability. But, uh, you know, I still had a lot of niggling injuries throughout my career, but I still had this dream of playing into my 40s, uh, believe it or not. (laughs) so ironic that Roger Federer at 39 is killing it (laughs) because he's doing all the right things. He's got everything dialed in. And I always thought the human body could do it. And... Um, I had that vision of doing it. But at 33 years old, I have a half-brother that was having some challenges with addiction, uh, with drugs. And I was visiting him, and he went through a a really rough experience that I personally witnessed. And it was at that moment, because I was in limbo. I was like, gosh, I want to keep playing, but I don't really, I'm I'm feeling kind of empty inside, and I'm struggling, and my ranking's like, 300 or 250 and I'm getting hurt I don't know if this is for me but I couldn't quit because I had this dream and my identity was just like so tied up but my brother went through this tough time and I decided to help him and it was almost like my brother's challenges forced me to make a career change otherwise I might have stayed in limbo another year or two it was too painful to to give up and so when that happened um, I helped him I put him in rehab I moved back to Denver and I basically announced to the Denver world that I was a coach now so there was no like planning there was no I didn't know I was going to be doing this and I fell into coaching and I quickly and I started coaching all these kids in Denver all the parents were sending not all but a lot of the parents were sending kids the kids to me to get to become good and I had this unique style of teaching because, again, I, I was fixated for myself on teaching the game in a simple way that people could understand, that I could communicate in a way, in a step-by-step method or process that could help people. So I was already kind of well ahead of the curve there and started coaching all these kids, and I quickly realized how much I loved it. And I quickly realized that I was actually meant and born to coach, that all that time being a player That was one reason I wasn't top 10 in the world or top 20 because I'm actually more suited to be the coach than I am that player. I get more fulfilled helping other people than me being the one raising the trophy. And so um, that was a cool revelation that I I realized all these years of training as a player set me up to be this coach at a young age. And so from there I started coaching these kids and then about a year or two in I realized, hey, I can, I can create video content and help more people than just the 25 kids that I'm coaching here in Denver. Right. So I started making videos on YouTube. I, I got coaches just like anything. And like, you want to get coaches if you want to get to the next level of something. So I hired coaches to teach me about marketing online, digital marketing, and email marketing, and product launches, and membership sites. And I've just been immersed in that you know, for the better part of the last decade. So it's been an awesome progression to still be in tennis, to still be 
able to coach and do it in such a progressive way. And um, yeah, it just speaks to my curiosity and my entrepreneurial spirit to be able to do the things that I'm doing now and to draw on all these past experiences. So when someone sees a video on YouTube or video in my course, there's much more to it than just, oh, I hit a forehand. They're getting, they're getting what I tested and what I experimented with. They're getting all of those years of trying things out to find the easiest solution for someone to get better. You do such a great job. And I, and I, I mean, obviously, I'm speaking on behalf of myself, but I know I'm also speaking on behalf of a number of others. Those little intricacies that you normally don't see when you're just watching, the Agassiz split step. We won't give away all the secrets, go, but, but go check that out. Yeah. The serve, the elbow yeah. the enemy, the, the dirty diaper. You come up with these things that are easy to remember, and you slice and dice it in such an easy way to uh, to learn from it and then go out and apply it you know at whatever level you you are which is great you just don't these are not just you, you don't have to be an elite athlete to to do what you're teaching and um, you do an incredible job and the fact that the internet exploded at that time and you can scale it um, you, you're, you're doing a tremendous job and and it's it's been very very impressive um, well, I, I want to I play my part in, in moving the sport forward. I think, you know, our sport is a beautiful sport. I think it's a, one of the most difficult sports to learn. I think coaching education has, has not been at the level it could to really help players get at all levels, from beginner to pro, to get the most enjoyment and satisfaction out of it and help people progress. And so I just want to play my part and leave some sort of a legacy that I, I left the sport better than, than when I started. And, um, you know, we've got our challenges in tennis, but I'd love to be a part of this innovative way that we can breathe life into, into our sport, into the players that love this game. You're, you're making your mark, Jeff. Don't worry about that. So, hey, we're like 41 minutes in. I don't want to take up much of much more of your time. You've been so kind and, and generous to do this with me. Um, you know, you're, you and I are about this, the same exact age, and we've seen um, several generations uh, of tennis players. And we started with Borg, McEnroe, Connors. We've moved on to the Agassiz and the Sampras's. And now, you know, you got the big three. Um, I, I don't know. This is the the big three: Novak, Fed, and Rafa. We're I don't know if we're ever going to see something like this again. I, I mean, at the end of the day, do you have do you have one one of the three, or is is it just something? All three you respect so much. Talk a little bit about your thoughts on on what we're witnessing, because I don't know if we're ever going to see this again. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me preface it by saying, you know, I have a theory. My theories aren't always correct, but. This is the first generation where you have players like Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic that have continued to be at the top of the game without the younger players being able to replace them. So in other words, when we had you know, Borg, he was replaced by a younger McEnroe. And then when you had McEnroe, he was replaced, I think Wendell's a little bit younger than him, I'm not sure. Um, then you had Wendell, and then you had the next group. When Sampras and Courier and Agassi come, came on, they were all beating, you know, McEnroe and Becker. So it's like every, like, 19 to 22-year-old that came on would beat the, the older guy. Right. And, and Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic have completely flipped the script on that. It's the first time in history, especially this long. I mean, look at any other sport. Uh, I think track and field, the 100-meter guy, Jason Gatlin's like 39, and he's still at the top of the game. But 
you know, these guys have transcended the sport and transcended patterns. And I think one of the reasons, there's two reasons that I want people to consider. Number one, the techniques have become so refined now that you really can't improve upon the current techniques. In other words, if you look at Roger Federer, he's like the perfect player, right? right and right. even Nadal and Djokovic, uh, I guess you could say Nadal's serve for a while technically is not up to snuff. But if you look at past players, Edberg had a weird forehand. McEnroe had weird grips. Connors had weird, weird grips. Uh, Courier, uh, Courier had um, that baseball swing backhand. That baseball swing backhand. Sampras <laughs> had a bad backhand, relatively speaking, right? Right. And so uh, Agassi's movement was a little suspect. So now, like these guys, don't have a weakness technically, or with their movement, or with their mental game. This is the second part. Those guys are the first gen. They're the last generation that didn't grow up with the smartphones. So all these young people growing up with a smartphone, they can't focus as long as these dudes. And so I think people should consider those two things, is that the techniques are so refined, and then the, the mental focus, the way they grew up as children, they didn't grow up with cell phones like the kids do today. So with that... Interesting. Said, Very interesting. Yeah. Right? Like, like and, and so obviously... At some point, the younger guys are gonna are going to move in. But like these guys are in their mid thirties, doing things that are just insane. And um, all look how many next gens have we had? I mean, we've had Nishikori and Rayonich. We've had Dimitrov. We've had, I mean, we've had like three or four next gen, right? And they still haven't been able to beat them, right? So if I look at the three players, I'm just going to talk about what I like about each one. I don't know if I can pick one that I like more than others. I like him more for different reasons. So so Federer as the statesman, as, as the pure ball striker, as the natural ballerina, the athlete, um, just being able to, um, his brand, like just his, his professionalism. Uh, when I met him five years ago at the U.S. Open, I had practiced with him in 2003, and I walked up to him five years ago. Only time I ever practiced with him was 2003 at the Canadian Open, right after he won Wimbledon for the first time. It's a whole other story. But I walk up to him, and you would, and I said, hey, Jeff Saldenstein, I don't know if you remember me. Oh, hey, Jeff, how are you doing? I, of course I remember you. That never would have happened if I walked up to Pete Sampras or Andre Agassi 15 years earlier. They might have looked at me like, like who are you? So just such a cool guy, you know, for, for his brand and, and all he's achieved and his skill set. I think his skill set is by far and away the best. Where I think he's a little bit weak is on the mental side of things. If you look at his breakpoint conversions, and it's all relative, right? Right. Breakpoint conversions. If you look at, um, you know, playing in the clutch, he's lost more match point match, matches where he's had match points than anybody else. So if, if Federer was actually stronger mentally, he would be way ahead of these other guys. Crazy. Because he's just such a <laughs> he's just a better tennis player. Right. It's crazy, right? Nadal, the injuries that he's come back from, the way he reinvent he's reinvented himself more than any player. Yeah. He takes the ball early now. I feel he's improved more or, or changed his game more than anyone. And no one really talks about that. People said he'd be out of the game five years ago because of the wear and tear, and now he stands on the baseline and flattens the ball out. Right. His, his bull-like nature, his fighting spirit, and his humbleness, the way he was raised, 
his competitiveness, his competitive, he meets anybody's competitiveness in any sport. I mean, I'm a Chicago guy. I'm a Michael Jordan guy. I mean, he's as competitive as there is, and, and, and Ralph is in that conversation. That's right. So, and then, and then Djokovic, I think the power of, of his mind and how he went from a guy who was weak mentally and weak physically and he completely rebuilt his body and his mind through holistic measures and through meditation. And, um, you know, he's more, I think he's more evolved than the other two guys in terms of his training and how he looks at the world. Um, he's just a deeper, deeper thinker than maybe the other two. And so they're all three just so special. And this is such a special time uh, in, our, in, in tennis and has been for a decade uh, that we should all appreciate appreciate their their strengths and they've made each other better they push each other to be better players so it's been awesome uh jeff this is this is great thank you so much and you're an example of you know doing what you love and and it becomes your your vocation it becomes your profession and you see the passion that you have and you're definitely making your mark in the game and and keep doing what you're doing because you're uh you're helping a ton of people out there thank you so much jeff Oh, I appreciate it. It's been a great interview, and I love what you're doing with the podcast. Keep it rocking. And, uh, yeah, again, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Jeff. Talk soon. All right. Bye. That was Jeff Sausenstein. What a gift to have him on. He has so much that we could unpack, and I I know uh, we're about 48 minutes in. We're going to try to have to get him back on because there's so much more that we can still talk about with Jeff. So I hope you enjoyed that. Again, please subscribe. Courtside with Beal and Tennis. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Thanks again, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it.